Thanks for joining us on the emdocs.net podcast. Today we're going to look at an EM at 3 a.m. post on post-tonsillectomy complications. Let's begin with the case. Your patient is an 8-year-old male who presents with his mom. His mom states that the patient started spitting up blood this morning. He appears well, but he suddenly starts throwing up coffee ground emesis. When he stops, you look at the back of the throat and you see what looks like a clot resembling a blackberry. He's tachycardic and mildly hypotensive. What's his diagnosis, and what are your next steps in your evaluation and therapy? This is a post-tonsillectomy complication, specifically bleeding. Tonsillectomy is a really common procedure, primarily performed in childhood for a couple different reasons. First, sleep disordered breathing or apnea. Second, severe recurrent sore throats. And finally, some dental issues, hemorrhagic tonsillitis, or a PTA a little understanding of the procedure can really help us in our evaluation. The procedure is pretty traumatic, resulting in significant edema of the tonsillar pillars and uvula. A fibrin clot develops on the tonsillar fossa within about 24 hours. This fibrin clot will proliferate significantly by day 5. The mucosa grows inward from the periphery, followed by clots separating from the tissue around one week, which is when the risk of bleeding is the highest. Full healing takes about two weeks, though it might be longer. When you're evaluating these patients, there are several key components of your history and exam. For your history, you need to evaluate the date of surgery, previous surgeries, difficulties during the tonsillectomy, any prior bleeding, PO intake, fevers, neck stiffness, patient activity, urine output, any vomiting, and difficulty breathing. Other important factors from your history include any coffee ground emesis, cooperation level, how many episodes of bleeding have occurred, as more than one suggests a coagulopathy, the presence of a visible clot, food and water intake, and finally hydration status. On your exam, assess the vital signs and pay close attention to tachycardia, which is typically the first sign of hemodynamic instability in pediatric patients. Assess hydration status, capillary refill, the neck, lungs, and the heart. Carefully perform your ENT and airway exam with close attention to the pharynx and the fibrin clot. Like we talked about, the appearance of the fibrin clot is really dependent on the time from surgery. The normal appearance is a thick gray coat by day five. A visible clot, which looks like a blackberry, is at very high risk of rupture. Finally, let's get into some complications. The big complications include pain, postoperative nausea and vomiting, decreased oral intake, airway obstruction, fever or infection, and the big one, postoperative bleeding. Sore throat is very common after the procedure and typically improves within two weeks. Up to 50% of patients will have severe pain during the first 48 hours after surgery. Codeine-containing medications are not recommended for pain management. Instead, these patients should be on acetaminophen and NSAIDs. If you need to provide these patients with pain relief, you can give them intranasal ketamine or fentanyl, which can provide fast relief in the ED. Ensure these patients are regularly taking acetaminophen and an NSAID. Nausea and vomiting are also common after tonsillectomy. These affect up to 90% of patients postoperatively. Patients are often given dexamethasone in surgery to assist with any postoperative edema and nausea. The unfortunate thing is that vomiting worsens dehydration, and many of these patients due to severe pain are already not taking in enough fluids. Provide antiemetics if nausea and vomiting are present, and assess the hydration status. If these patients are PO intolerant, they'll need admission.
This leads us to our next one, which is decreased oral intake and dehydration. Decreased oral intake is very common in this patient population. You must encourage patients to eat and drink as they can tolerate. Exams should focus on the hydration status, vital signs, and capillary refill. For mild to moderate dehydration, you can give the patient oral fluids. If they're severely dehydrated, provide IV fluids, obtain some labs, including electrolytes and renal function, and consider admission. Airway obstruction is our next complication. Blood and clots accumulating in the oropharynx may occur acutely, though this is pretty uncommon. Dislodged tonsillar tissue not fully removed during the procedure can also result in airway obstruction, though again this is pretty rare. If you have a patient who's in respiratory distress, allow them to maintain a position of comfort, and definitive airway might be required. Sedation, especially with ketamine as a part of delayed sequence intubation, may allow preoxygenation and an attempt to remove any foreign tissue. Keep in mind that patients treated for obstructive sleep apnea are at increased risk of airway obstruction after the procedure. Negative pressure pulmonary edema can occur due to the prolonged obstruction of the upper airway and increased intrathoracic pressure. Sudden removal of the tonsils during the operation increases venous return and pulmonary volume in hydrostatic pressure, pushing fluid into the pulmonary tissue. For these patients, treat them with positive pressure ventilation, though you might need a definitive airway. Fever and infection is our next complication. Many of these patients are provided post-operative antibiotics, though the literature suggests no real reduction in infection rates or post-operative pain with these agents. Fever can occur 18 to 36 hours after the procedure due to atelectasis. Fever lasting over one day suggests infection, especially when combined with severe throat pain. Infection can present with severe pain, erythema, difficulty with neck range of motion, and fever over 24 hours. Think about post-operative infection and superative lymphadenitis in these patients. Though these are very rare complications, emergent treatment is necessary with IV antibiotics and ENT consultation. Imaging of the neck is also recommended. Our final and most significant complication is post-tonsillectomy bleeding. Most bleeds will stop before the patient arrives in the ED, or they can be controlled in the ED. This can occur in up to 10% of patients undergoing tonsillectomy. It's most common in the 21 to 30-year age group, and less common in those less than 6 years of age. There's two phases of bleeding. There's earlier primary bleeding, which occurs within the first day after tonsillectomy, and accounts for approximately 10% of bleeds. This is usually due to a surgical technique issue or coagulopathy. These patients need emergent ENT consultation and should be managed in the OR. Late or secondary bleeding is the most common, accounting for about 90% of bleeds, and occurs 5 to 10 days after surgery, which is when the fibrin clot sloughs off. Significant bleeding is defined by patients with active bleeding or those with a visible clot. Now for management, most of these patients won't be bleeding at the time of evaluation, but they'll have some history of bleeding. A quarter will have some minor oozing, and 5% are bleeding actively. If they're actively bleeding, have the patient lean forward and assume a position of comfort. Emergently consult ENT, obtain personal protective equipment, a headlamp, McGill forceps, gauze, suction, and airway equipment. If the patient is severely bleeding, obtain IV access. Have the patient rinse with cold water and lidocaine with epinephrine. TXA, either nebulized or oral solution, can also be really beneficial here. Do not remove a visible clot. If the patient has local, minor oozing, this can often be controlled with silver nitrate 
after analgesia and lidocaine, epinephrine, and TXA. For those patients with more severe bleeding, apply direct pressure to site with the McGill's, which are typically wrapped with a Curlex gauze, saturated with epinephrine. Place pressure laterally, not posteriorly. Keep in mind that most of these patients are going to be uncooperative, especially if they're younger, and you might need to have ketamine available for sedation. A figure of eight stitch may be needed for definitive control. Make sure to send a CBC, type and screen, coagulation panel, and if you have it available, a TEG might be helpful. For those patients with severe bleeding, you can consider TXA, 15 mg per kilogram IV, and DDAVP, 0.3 micrograms per kilogram IV, for those patients whom you're suspicious of an undiagnosed coagulopathy. These patients may require a blood product transfusion, especially younger patients with a low cardiac reserve. If these patients still are bleeding despite your pressure, they may need intubation and oral packing. What about the disposition of these patients? First, discuss all patients with ENT. If you have a patient with minor, late secondary bleeding that has been controlled, has no visible clots, and you're able to obtain follow-up, the patient may be appropriate for discharge. All patients with early and primary bleeding, significant bleeding, or those with a visible clot should be taken to the OR. In summary, some significant complications after tonsillectomy include pain, nausea and vomiting, decreased intake and dehydration, airway obstruction, fever and infection, and finally, post-tonsillectomy bleeding. The most common ones are pain, nausea and vomiting, and decreased oral intake. Keep in mind, airway obstruction, fever and infection, and post-tonsillectomy hemorrhage, which can be life-threatening complications. Thanks for joining us today on the emdocs.net podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and stay safe and healthy, everyone.